Duolingo at first, it was not a way for us to get rich. It was a way for us to do something with impact. It was always like, no, we really are going to do something that transforms education. Unfortunately for education, it's not like you can do like a social network that just gets popular from one day to the next because everybody contributes photographs or whatever. You can't do that for education. Transforming education is a, a multi-decade thing. And I kind of knew that. You know, we always knew that. It was, we took the long view for it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Are you from Pittsburgh? Like, you've been here for nine years? Most people that work here are not from Pittsburgh. And that blew my mind. He said, yeah, I was working at Google in the Bay Area, I think. And I said, do you like it here? He almost didn't understand the question. He's like, well, of course I like it here. Like, that's why I still work here, which is a, <laughs> kind of a unique mindset. That question is not weird where I'm from, mm-hmm. but the way he even looked at me that, when funny. I asked him that's the question, yeah, yeah. he's like, yeah, of course I like, like, or I'd be working somewhere else. Right. And right. I'm like, so you move from the Bay Area to Pittsburgh. You've been here for nine years. I'm asking him what he does. He works on the English, uh, English the, test. Yeah. The, the English test. Yep, yep, yep. And it dawned on me that most people, to your point, are moving to Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. I don't know the percentage, but I'm going to. My best guess is 20% of the people who employ here are from Pittsburgh, maybe even less than that. That's my guess. So you would move everyone here, right? Like if they wanted to. We've always moved everyone here. If they wanted to work at Duolingo, they moved to Pittsburgh. Well, we have offices in other places. We have another office in New York with about 200 people. Okay. And we have an office in Beijing with 30 people, one in. Detroit, Seattle, and Berlin, they all have about 15 people. And then the big ones here. So yeah, we've moved people to an office. That's for sure. Why? Personally, and I think a lot of the people in the leadership team think that you work better when you're in person. Yeah. I still believe that there's something about sitting across the table from you, seeing the whites of your eyes, that just leads to an efficacy of the conversation or to the working relationship, to your point, that I assume is what your executive team. Um, um, We're very big in person. Did the COVID stuff test your conviction on in-person work? No, not mine. I always just wanted to do in-person. I was eager to get back to the office. And the other thing that we did is we never hired. I mean, during the height of COVID, you just couldn't be in the office. So yeah. we hired people remotely, but we told all of them, this is a job in Pittsburgh or in New York or whatever. That is where your job is. I understand that right now you need to be wherever you are. But you're going to have to move as soon as we reopen the offices. So everybody knew that. And I think, you know, when we said, when we called people back to the office, I don't think we may have lost one or two employees, but that's it. Because everybody was under the impression that they were going to have to come back. Wow. That is relatively contrarian in this day and age. The edge case that most people will point to is like, well, Luis, what happens when there's the 10X engineer that lives in Austin? Yeah. And by the way, now... Each person incrementally probably is more dilutive, is a diluted ad than mm-hmm. it is the first 20 people sure. when the company's existential. Sure. So I think these those two phases might be different. It's very different, yeah. Um, but let's imagine in the beginning, this was still the same thing. It was still very in-person based. The first 50 employees were basically all- They, they were all, in they, fact, in the same office. Every single person was every here. Every single one. So did you come across 
the incredible, game-changing people. Yeah, we did. We simply, you know, we tried to get them to move here, and if they wouldn't, we wouldn't hire them. There was one person that we had early on that was kind of all over the place, but she was doing our marketing, but she was doing marketing in different places. That's the only remote employee we had for a while. And then the time when it got most tested was when we had somebody who had been here for a long time, an amazing, that's one of these 10X engineers, and he said, so I'm moving to Seattle. And then we were like, uh-oh. And that's why we opened the Seattle office. No kidding. We opened the Seattle. We were like, okay, you know what? How about this? We're going to open an office there. Was it worth it? Yeah, it was worth it. It was. But we just didn't want him to be alone. I mean, by the way, it is not, after many years today, it is not true that 100% of our employees are in an office. Today? Yeah. I mean, at this point, I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to guess about 90 to 95% are in an office. We do have a small fraction, call it 5% of fully remote, but usually they're either because their job requires it. So for example, we have country marketing managers. So the country marketing manager for Mexico is in Mexico. Yeah. The one for Brazil is in Brazil. The one for Japan is in Japan, etc. So we have those people. And then we do have a few people, usually not in engineering or product or design roles that we've decided, okay, it's okay to be remote, but we're it's very rare. Yeah. Well, now you're almost 700% $7 billion market cap company. Yeah. That makes sense. In the beginning, I think, is when you get really tested. The beginning, this was like 12 years ago. I don't think people expected remote work as much. Totally. They just, they just didn't. I mean, totally. so we just said, well, you got to move. And yeah, we got turned down quite a bit. Pittsburgh isn't the number one. This is not Miami. No, <laughs> um, it's, it's not, not Miami. like the n- number one destination that everyone is yeah. clamoring to move to. Mm-hmm. Because I think actually a lot of founders are thinking about this right Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. I think actually, if you ask the majority of founders, their biggest regret during COVID was creating all these exceptions to everyone being dispersed remotely. Is that the topic of conversation amongst your founders? When I talk to other other CEOs, I think most of them massively regret having started hiring people. A person who was amazing, but they live in Denver, and they never did the conversation that said, well, you're going to have to move. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's um, a lot of people regret that. A lot of them are moving back to San Francisco. By the way, the fa- the CEOs left too, and now they're moving back to San Francisco. I know. I know. Well, that's one thing. That is, by the way, that's kind of a moral thing. If you're not there, you can't expla- expect right. your that's employees right. to be there. Like, that's you right. got to be there that's too. Right. You, that's, you're in Fiji. <laughs> that's, well, right. That's, <laughs> that's you. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. What did you do? Did you like create a. You know, like the tourist pamphlet things, like, hey, this is what Pitt, like, here's what Pittsburgh is. We have had that at different times. I don't know what we currently have. At different times, we have had that. What was the pitch? Did you have a, like, besides, was it, or was it just the mission? The pitch was never Pittsburgh. I mean, you know, we've tried to say, like, Pittsburgh is pretty great, et cetera. There's there's some stuff, but the pitch was never Pittsburgh. The pitch is, come work at Duolingo. It works well. And I'll tell you one thing that is interesting. If you talk to our employees in, for example, in the New York office versus the Pittsburgh office. When you talk to a Pittsburgh employee, they identify themselves as first and foremost a Duolingo employee. When you talk to a, somebody in the New York office, they identify themselves first and foremost as a New Yorker. It's pretty funny. Mm. Uh, I mean, if people here that's just kind of like, well, I'm a Duolingo employee. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in New York, they're they're a New Yorker. The idea that most people are imported to the office from out of town mm-hmm. went against what I thought. I was on a run this morning. That's what I do when I go to a new city. I go mm-hmm. for a run. Mm-hmm. And I'm running through the campus. I'm staying in Oakland right okay. here. So yeah, yeah. You're running which through is, probably the Pitt campus. Or, uh, the Pitt or, campus. But then there was also... The CMU, they're right next to each other. They're right next to each other. Yeah. 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 
Carnegie Mellon was right there. And so I'm running around and I'm kind of thinking about this conversation. Uh And I'm like, man, this guy kind of has had a monopoly on really smart people that want to go work at a cool tech company since the beginning. So my thought was, it's probably not that hard to sell people that are the top 1% of all of their class to come work here. Mm -hmm. But what you're telling me is most people are coming from out of town. We hire a lot from Carnegie Mellon, that's for sure. But by Which the is way, where you teach or taught. I used to teach at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. But by the way, the overwhelming majority of people who go to Carnegie Mellon are not from Pittsburgh. Right. I mean, it's so, right. so those, we hire, do hire them from Carnegie Mellon, but these are not Pittsburghers. These are people who just came to Carnegie Mellon. and that, So we do hire quite a bit from Carnegie Mellon, but at this point, it probably is the number one school that we have hired from historically. But today, if you look at, for example, the people that we hired right out of school last year, I don't think Carnegie Mellon was number one. It was probably top three, but we hire from an, a number of schools, mainly East Coast schools. We hire a lot from Duke. We hire a lot from Cornell. Yeah. We hire a lot from MIT. So these are the schools we hire from. I saw you write somewhere once, our hiring bar is very high. We look for people who have something exceptional in their resume. In some cases, it's a high GPA from a top university. In others, it's an amazing portfolio. And in others, it's beating all odds from the hand that they were dealt in life. Yeah. Can you explain that framework a little bit more? I think the top universities with a high GPA is fairly explanatory. Easy, yeah. But maybe the other ones. Well, the portfolio is one that mainly applies to artistic. We have about 100 people in our design organization. So we have a lot of artists or designers. So for them, the most important thing is their portfolio. And what we're looking for, you know, it's nice if they went to a fancy school or whatever, but usually we just look at for an exceptional portfolio. So that's the portfolio. And then the other one, we do hire people that may not have gone to a top school or anything like that. But if really it is the case that they grew up in conditions where it was most likely that they weren't even going to go to college. That's pretty exceptional. And, you know, you see that not only with people who kind of grew up in poorer regions in the country, but also that grew up in poorer countries. I myself am from Guatemala. We've hired a lot of people from, you know, countries where it is exceptional that they are even here. And usually these people are strivers. They work very hard and they're usually exceptional. When you were growing up in Guatemala, when did you first think that you could get out? I don't know when I first thought that. I It wasn't the case that I always wanted to leave the country. At different times, my mother would tell me that it'd probably be best if, if you went to the U.S. for college, but I kind of never thought about that. It became serious when I was in 1996, early 1996, it became serious. And by the way, that's the year that I was a senior in high school, or no, junior in high school, finishing junior year. It became serious for two reasons. One is I decided that what I wanted to do was to major in math. And it turned out that there was no easy way to major in math in Guatemala. The major existed, but nobody was taking the classes. So they actually weren't offering the classes. So it was basically no easy way Uh to do that. So that was one thing I thought, okay, well, that sucks. And then the other one is it happened that my aunt was kidnapped for money in that year. And that was a pretty horrendous situation. Fortunately, she lived. We just had to pay a ransom. But when I saw that, and I saw that I also couldn't get a math major, I was like, yeah, I think I should probably go study in the U.S. Yeah. And, and that's what happened. What was conversation like for you at the dinner table? Did you have a dinner table? Was it mom yeah. and dad? Uh, no, there was no. it was just my mom. I grew up entirely with just my mom. There was a dinner table, but it was just the two of us. Just mom. Just mom. Uh, and I'm an only child. I don't know if we ever had that conversation. I think my mom. 
honestly, I'm pretty sure that my mom knew way before me that I should probably come study in the U.S. I was the best student, you know, throughout my the whole time that I was in school. I think my mom kind of knew that. I don't, I don't know if we ever had a conversation. I'm not sure you've ever been asked this or I haven't heard. And if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. To. But yep. where was dad? Oh, um, it's a, so here's what happened. This is a, it's a, it's a weird story. If you don't want to talk no, about happy, it. No, happy okay. to talk about it. My mother's a doctor. And my father is, is also a doctor. And the story that I know, this is a story that I've been told. I don't know. You know reality is usually a lot more complicated than this. But this is the story I've been told. When my mother turned 40, she was did not have children and she was single and she was a doctor. She had spent most of her time kind of dedicated to her career. She decided that she wanted to have a child. She's a pretty independent person. I don't, for some reason, she kind of didn't decide she wanted a husband. She decided she wanted a child. Mm -hmm. And what she did is she thought of the people that she thought would be a good father for the child, but not present father, just a person that she would like their genes. Mm. And she- It's very practical. That is what she thought. My mother's a little odd. I think she may be in the autism spectrum, but she's a little odd. What she did is she went to her professor and convinced him somehow, that was my dad, convinced him somehow- No way. Yes, to have a kid with her. And she said, I'll take care of everything. I'll take care of everything. I just want one thing, that he has like your last name. So it's like a legitimate child. But other than that, you know, I don't no need to marry, no, no, just we'll have a child. And I don't know how the hell my dad, my dad, by the way, has passed by now, and I didn't really know him very well, but I don't know how he agreed to this. I, I this is this beats wow. me. But that is the that is what happened. And then sure enough, my mother took care of me entirely. No. Wow. And it worked. Literally, I think you're off the charts in intelligence. Uh, I mean, it's insane. Objectively. It worked in that respect. And there were a lot of things that were that were odd about that, but you know, it seems to have worked. I was yeah, I mean, I from the people that I've talked to, obviously, you know, Bing, like Bing, we, Bing we know Gordon, many, yes. we know many of the same people, mm -hmm. and the obvious observation that most make is that you're off the charts smart. And we're going to talk about some of this stuff. You got the MacArthur Grant when you were 18 years old or something. No, 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 quite. I, I was 27, 27. It's the Genius Award, yeah. is what it's called. But you also have this intensity and drive. And even now, like when I sit across the table from you, you're 10 years into this company. Mm -hmm. You're coming into this office every day. Your reputation is that you don't really take much time off. Like this is it. And you sold one or maybe two companies to Google before yeah. like you, you didn't even need this company financially. I, I did not. And is there something there, the idea that your mother went through all of this length to be able to basically create this incredible high potential human that you almost need to go fulfill that potential in some way. And I just like, you can't manufacture this drive. It's just hard for me to believe that. I don't know. This has turned into a therapy session. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I've been told that sometimes you turn <laughs> this into has that. Been into a therapy. You know, I don't know where the drive comes from. It probably has, honestly, I mean, I go to therapy. I, I've done my homework in terms of upbringing. My upbringing definitely had not only a little amount, but a lot to do with my drive. I do have a lot of drive. And yeah, it probably has to do some with my mother and kind of not disappointing her. She's a pretty interesting person. I mean, she never asked me how I did in school. She never- Growing she up. No, and she doesn't seem to care about the big decisions. You know, at some point when I was, I had just graduated grad school, I got a PhD and I was kind of considering where to get a, take a job. And I kind of asked her and- she had nothing to say. And I remember she said she kind of really quickly changed the topic and asked me, like, 
if it was cold outside or something. Like it was just she had nothing to say about yeah. it. So it's weird in yeah. that respect. And she lives with you now? She now lives with me. Well, hold on. I have a house here in Pittsburgh and I have a house in New York. Uh, she lives in the Pittsburgh house. I brought her during COVID because, I mean, she's older. You know, she had me at age 42. Yeah. Um, so she's older. She's uh, 86. And she was living in Guatemala and there were no vaccines for COVID. And when the vaccines for COVID came out here, I just brought her to get a vaccine. And uh, then she never left. And so she, I guess, she just lives in the Pittsburgh house and she's there. Wow. Yeah. She's a pretty funny individual. And can I revisit the drive thing for a second? You're married, yeah. right? Do others also comment like, dude, how is this flames? There's no way that I'm just observing this now. No, no. What they comment on is more my energy. Like I think most people have told, most people that know me well just say the amount of energy you have is like 10 times what most everybody has. I seem to just have a lot of energy. Mm. I don't know where that comes from, but I seem to have a lot. Like every day I wake up very early and I just, I go. Yeah. I've been told that I have an obscene amount of energy Mm. too. It just Mm. doesn't go away. Yeah. And I think that the common misconception of energy, at least my energy, can't speak for yours, is that it's just there forever in perpetuity, that it's this natural reservoir that never gets drained. And I think, at least for me, there's a very specific set of things that I need to do in a day in order to maintain or preserve the energy. Maybe that's how I eat, how I sleep, and how I work out, basically. Like those three things, as long as I do those three things well, it's there. If I lose one of those three things, I am not the energetic person that I'd like Uh, to be. Uh Do you feel like you just have it no matter what? I just have it. Now, I just have this morning routine that if I don't do it in a given day, I just feel like crap the whole day. But it's not that I lost energy. I just feel like something's missing. Like it's almost OCD. Yes. For me, that's OCD. But the energy is kind of always there. What's the morning routine? It's like a pro sports player that if they don't tie their shoes the right (laughs) way. No, it just feels like that. I just have it. And it's it's basically I wake up at like 5 a.m. The first thing I do is I check the Duolingo metrics from the day before. I check Duolingo Slack, my email. I check the Duolingo mentions on Twitter for the last one hour. So I'd look at the last one hour, you know, kind of what people are saying. And then I do a one hour exercise routine. And then that's that. And then, you know, I shower and come to the office. You do that every morning? Every single morning. Like this includes Saturdays and Sundays. How long have you been doing this for? 10 years, easy. The first thing you do is check the metrics? Yeah. So you go to the dashboard. Mm-hmm. There's and- a dashboard that was specifically made for me. <laughs> are you serious yeah, yeah yeah there's a dashboard that was it's basically and, and it changes over time because it's the things that i'm keeping track of which do change over time but it's, it's a dashboard that was specifically made for me it is called the louis dashboard and people can check it anybody can check it in the company but it was made for me and if anybody can check it in the company that's a pretty easy way to align the things that matter the most yes, to the company and i use that to align i use I, this that's why i'm diligent about removing or adding things because it's basically what i care about which i think is what the company should care about and what are some metrics that have not been removed from the dashboard since the beginning daily active users daily active users yeah. and if you see something off in the dashboard do you immediately go yes. It's much rarer now, but early on, you know, I, I could definitely see that is not what I expected for daily a- active users yesterday. So what happened? Or whatever the metric is. So I definitely go. It's much more rare now because usually the teams that are in charge of each of these metrics kind of have leading indicators and they, they know before me. It's usually I'm not the first to find out. Yeah, I used to be the first to find out for a lot of the problems. Yeah. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit. And I assume it's the same reason why you check the Twitter metrics, like to be ground truth. 
to what's actually happening in the world with your product. Twitter is very useful for that. I just go to Twitter, I type Duolingo, and I click on latest. So it's basically just the last unfiltered, the last hour of what people say. And usually we have about, I don't know, three or four tweets per minute that people tweet about. That's a shitload. Yeah, that people just say stuff about Duolingo. And I try to see what people are saying. And you can see, I mean, it's pretty similar every day, but sometimes there's like changes. And, you know, it's interesting to see what they say. Importantly, where I don't get a lot of signal from is checking Reddit. Because we have a subreddit, and my God, those people are just so negative. Yeah. And I have now learned they should be ignored. I mean, yeah. they're, they may have a small point, but in Reddit, they always think that Duolingo is worse now than it was a year ago. And they have been saying that for the last 10 years. So if you were to believe our subreddit, we are continuously getting shittier and shittier for the last oh, 10 years. And I know that's not true. So I, I ignore them. It reminds me a little bit, and I reference him all the time on this show because I think he's an N of one entrepreneur, Parker Conrad from Rip, one of our portfolio companies, Rippling. He is the sole admin of the Rippling payroll. So there is a 1,500 employees at Rippling. Wow. He <laughs> approves every expense. He <laughs> approves everything, every single thing. He's the only admin of their own company. Well, he uses his own thing. Yeah, and it, it reminds good. me a little bit of this, which is that at some point, when you become a big enough company and you started from the beginning and you're as dialed in as you are and want to be, you need to find some way to be close to the ground truth. Because it strikes me that what happens at bigger and bigger companies is that you're more insulated from reality. Oh, yeah. And And also people tell you what you want to hear. Exactly. Because now you're the big fancy CEO, whereas you don't think of yourself that way. Nope. Everybody else thinks of you that way. Yep. And that's a problem, actually. I agree. It's a problem. And I think that's especially a problem for founders who are still the CEOs because generally they care the same. Yep. that they used to 10 years ago in your case. However, their distance from reality starts to grow. And so you got to find ways. It's like a forcing function to get to the truth, to at least be able to ask the questions that guide the team. Is that, do you, I don't know. Completely. I completely agree with that. Um, it is definitely the case that I notice more and more that people tell me what, what I want to hear. I am aware that a lot of my meetings have a pre-meeting which I really don't like. The fact that, like, why'd you meet before without me? And, you know, they met to make sure that nobody looks dumb in front of me. And I'm like, why, why would you care? I don't like that. But yeah. that, is, that is reality. And I can't go around stopping all pre-meetings. But if there are Duolingo employees listening to this, please stop the pre-meetings. Stop it. Stop <laughs> yes. it. And there's only, I say only, but there's, what, 650 employees? It's about 700 now. That feels small to me. When I say small, like small relative to, you're a $7 billion company, yeah. market cap-wise. Yeah. yeah. You're... you're user base is gigantic. Yep. Your bookings in Q2 were almost $140 million in Q2, growing 40% year over year. This is a huge company. Yeah. It also strikes me as a bit contrarian, going back to our early conversation about being in person, that you're not throwing a bunch of people at problems. We don't do that. We're very careful with that. I mean, my sense is that teams should be small. The smaller, the better. Of course, you cannot, you need more than one person to do many things, but the smaller the team, the better. Uh, so that's one thing that we do. The other thing is we try really hard not to have too many people in these roles that are not multiplicative. Engineering or designers or product managers, they're usually multiplicative. In the, they're usually automating something or they're actually working on the product. The roles that are less multiplicative, it's like customer support. You know, I love our customer support people for sure, but we just don't want to hire 300 of them totally. because it's very easy and they're, they're usually not multiplicative. So we try to 
not hire too many of these roles because that's how you get yourself full of a lot of employees. And, you know, I generally think if you can do the same thing with fewer employees, it is better. Not just because it's cheaper. So that's great that it's cheaper, but it's also, it's just more efficient. And we're starting to see that at Duolingo for sure. The more people you have, you employ a lot of people whose job it is to kind of be not exactly middle managers, but just kind of like pushing paper around. Just kind of like, well, I, you know, actually, I don't actually do anything. I just move this process this way. And such people are definitely necessary. But I think you get into trouble when you have a company where 80% of the people are like that. And companies that grow a lot, that seems to happen where most of the people are in these sort of, uh, you know, either middle management or project management roles. And I think that just makes things very inefficient. Can I tell you two of my favorite Duolingo facts? Tell me. The first is that there's more people in the U.S. learning on Duolingo than there are foreign language learners in all U.S. high schools combined. Correct. The second is that people who complete a half a course on Duolingo learn as much as students taking four university semesters of language education. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. Yep. Do you have any observations about language learning that have taught you anything about human behavior more broadly? Well, the biggest one, by a wide margin. I mean, I can say many other ones that are interesting, et cetera, but the biggest one, and I, we are huge believers in this, is that the hardest thing about learning something by yourself is staying motivated. I believe that is where we stand out as a company. I believe most educational apps or educational software, they may tell you that, but they don't act like that. If you look at their product, you can see that their number one thing is to teach and they pay very little attention to keep people motivated, I think it should be the opposite. It's just the hardest thing is to keep them motivated. For me, that's that's by far the biggest issue. By the way, I see that in everything we do. I see that, you know, for example, with the with all the AI stuff that's coming out, you know, in the last, call it year, there's a lot of educational chatbots, educational thing, and I see ex- they, they all make what I believe to be exactly the same mistake. It's there, it can teach you something, but it's super boring. And so this is why, for example, for our own applications of AI, whenever we have the chatbot teaching you something, as opposed to just putting a chatbot there that says, teach them this, we try to make it so that our chatbot tries to, for example, when it's doing a conversational practice, it gets angry at you. It does weird things that keep you actually engaged, as opposed to just teach. Mm. To me, that's the biggest thing about that I've learned about learning anything by yourself. In the case of language learning in particular, there's another one which took me a while to realize, but there's this... This actually came from, and I don't know how true this story is, but somebody told me the story, but it really makes sense from everything I've learned. The story is that some branch of the military wanted to teach all the soldiers Arabic. And this was a while ago, this is before Dueling Women existed, they were trying to teach Arabic. And they realized that most of the people that they, they tried to teach Arabic to just didn't learn it. But there were some that learned it. And this being the military, they were spending an inordinate amount of money per soldier trying to teach them Arabic uh-huh. and mostly failing. And so somebody had this idea, you know what, maybe we should test them beforehand to figure out whether they're going to be a person that learns Arabic or not. And so they came up with a test to figure out whether you're going to be good at learning a language or not. Uh. And the test, it turned out the single most important factor. So there were a few things. First of all, you have to have a certain level of intelligence, like your IQs. If your IQs below than like 90, uh, you're going to have a harder time. There's a few things that make it a little harder, but the single biggest thing is whether you are outgoing and are okay sounding dumb. If you're outgoing and you're okay sounding dumb, you're much better at learning a language. And you see that it's just because these are these people who are just like, they're okay that their accent sucks. They're okay that 
they don't even remember the word, but they'll still try to talk. And those people just get so much more practice yeah. than the other. For example, I am not like that. I am actually bad at learning languages because I feel self-conscious about my accent. Even though you spoke Spanish uh, yeah, first, but, don't you think you have the muscle memory of no, language learning? No, no, I don't because I learned English too early. So, for example, for Portuguese and for French, I am at a point where I'm so good that I can watch entire Netflix shows in that language without subtitles. I understand the vast majority, except for very hardcore slang. I can really understand the whole thing, but if you ask me to talk, I'm very shy. And so I just never get practice because I'm very shy at talking. And I think this is the, the biggest thing that determines whether you're good at languages or not is whether you're very outgoing and okay sounding stupid. That's very interesting. Yeah, so the people who are like that, that there are such people, they're really good at languages. Yeah, I mean, most people are the opposite. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, this in part explains why in Japan, people are very good at written English, but very bad at spoken English. And it's because the culture is such that you- You, you want know, to save face. You want to save face. And that is the opposite of what a culture should be if you're going to be learning a language. That's right. There's been a lot of talk around the decline of American exceptionalism. And can we use language as a proxy for this? It's not perfect. It's not a science here. But in the last, let's say, five years, has the number of people on Duolingo that want to learn English increased, decreased, remained the same? It's increased. It's increased. Yeah, and we are big believers. I mean, I don't know if, if how much it relates to American exceptionalism, but if you look at language learning in the world, it's overwhelmingly about learning English. That is the language that we, people want to learn. And you would think, you know, a lot of people talk about like, well, China's going to take over. If you look at our metrics, if you look at any metrics about language learning, certainly our metrics, the number of people learning Chinese is tiny. I mean, it's under 1% of our users are learning Chinese. And what percent is English? Oof, over 50%. Yeah. So, wow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge difference. I mean, our best estimate is that in the world, not just at Duolingo, but in the world, everywhere, there are about 20 million people in the world learning Chinese. Whereas there's about 2 billion people learning English. Wow. At least language-wise, I don't think we are at a point where English is losing any kind of shine. Yeah. When did you learn English? Very early. I don't remember it. I mean- But um, they taught it in school in Guatemala. Well, I went to an American school. So that was one thing, an American school in Guatemala. And then, but my mom kind of started teaching me English very early on. So I don't remember. Ages around four or five. And did you take an English test to get out of Guatemala? I did. I had to do that. To come to college, to the U.S., I had to take an English test, basically a, a standardized exam called the TOEFL to prove that you can speak English. And Duolingo now certifies that. Now we decided, so <laughs> this was an interesting story. I mean, it, it's only somewhat related. It's got to make you a little emotional. No, I feel, I, well, I feel really good about that. When I was in Guatemala, you know, I had applied to college. And in order to apply to college, you need to take, uh, as opposed to only one standardized test, which, you know, when you apply to college here, you have to take the SAT. I had to take the SAT, but I also had to take the TOEFL. And the TOEFL was, you know, it's, it's a test that just proves that you know English. It was, I remember at the time, it was 350 US dollars, which, you know, was a good amount of money. But in addition to that, you had to take it in person. And we, in the country of Guatemala, they ran out of seats of the TOEFL for, I couldn't get a reservation. I couldn't get a, you know, a seat. So in order to actually hit the deadline for my application, I had to fly to El Salvador to take the test. So it was this ridiculous thing. Fortunately, I was able to do it, but it, you know, the whole thing cost well over $1,000. At the time, in 1996, El Salvador was war-torn. It was like a weird thing that I had to do that. Fast forward many years later, 
at Duolingo, we decided this type of thing we could do a lot better. And so we made our own test, the Duolingo English test. The big difference is you can take it from anywhere. So it's, it's an online test. And today, most U.S. universities and not just U.S. universities in the U.K., in Canada, et cetera, are accepting the results of our tests so that people don't have to do what I had to do, which was travel to another country to take the, the test or whatever. You can just take it from home. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm very happy with that. Do you go back to Guatemala? Yeah. I mean, I used to go back more often. You must be a f***ing hero there. I am. Um, like, it, actually. Yeah, I, I am. And it is a weird situation where I am actually famous in the whole country. People actually recognize me. This is very different from when I'm here in New York or whatever. Nobody knows who I am. Probably but even in Pittsburgh, it's like not even... In Pittsburgh, I'm half recognized, but it's not like that. <laughs> but in Guatemala, people take selfies with me all the time. I cannot go you to a restaurant. You can't walk around? Not really. Not You're really. like actually kind of a celebrity there. I am, but it's a weird thing. And the reason is because Guatemala is a country, it's a poor country, and it's mostly bad news coming out of Guatemala. I mean, it's usually, if you look at it from here from the U.S., the only thing you hear about Guatemala is like there's these caravans of immigrants trying to cross. The, totally. That's what you hear about Guatemala. Totally. It's usually bad news. I am one of the few things that, not the only one, there, there's a few other people that are good news. But yeah, I think people have, have taken to me. And, and I think the other thing that I, has made a big difference in terms of my how well-known I am in Guatemala is I got involved in terms of ta- speaking against the very corrupt governments we've had. And so I am I'm not super welcome in terms of the government in Guatemala. Yeah. Uh, but I do go, I have to go with very heavy security. And um, that's what happens. The last time that I was there, you know, I just hire these people that do security for the UN. I hire them to be my security too. They're so pro that they had pouches of blood of my same type in the car in case something happens to me. Come and, on. Yes. And when they told me that, I think they were trying to tell me so that I felt better, but I felt worse. Yeah, <laughs> was hell like, yeah. I don't want to know yeah, you're, that. <laughs> like you're officially in a, dangerous, in a dangerous area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason that you are this way, it's not because you're like an actor in a movie. It's because you represent, similar to what an athlete does when they come out of a certain neighborhood, that you can get out of that hope. area. And it's I hope. think it is hope. And I yeah. think if you take that a step further, what Duolingo does for the people of Guatemala is give them hope even using this platform that they could take the English test, they can learn English, and they can come to somewhere like America and thrive. Yeah, I mean, pretty incredible. certainly that's true for, for Guatemala, but I think that's true for most countries in terms of learning English. I mean, English is a very special language for people to learn. Usually when you're learning French, you know, people who are learning French on Duolingo are usually pretty well off. And, they, you know, they're like, well, I, I'd like to go to Paris and like order a croissant or mm-hmm. whatever. The people who are learning English usually really are trying to make a positive change in their life. It's pretty different. English is such a special, we, even, we treat it very differently here at Duolingo because it's such a special thing that you're doing when you're learning English. It is with the purpose of improving your life. Mm-hmm. Unlike, again, nothing wrong with learning French, nothing wrong with learning Spanish, but usually people who are learning those languages are like, yeah, it'd be nice to go to Spain or it'd be nice. It's, it's, it's pretty different. Yeah. You graduated Carnegie Mellon with your computer science degree. That was my PhD. Sorry, with your PhD. That's right. And you wanted to be a professor. Uh, yeah. And I became a professor. And you became a professor. Yeah. By the way, do you still ever think like it's funny, we talk about like you going around and like being semi-famous here and like you just stumbled into this. This is, this is not, not the, the design. I, this is not, this Do is you not ever sometimes think like, man, being in front of a classroom again, educating in that way might be kind of nice? I'd really like some aspects of being in front of the classroom. I actually liked being in front of the classroom. It turned out I did not like being a professor because I didn't realize 
what the job of a professor was. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be a professor, but it's because I watched these movies of like these math professors, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there's like a beautiful mind or right, whatever. Right, you watch right. these movies and you're like, oh my God, these people are like daydreaming in gothic buildings all day long. That sounds awesome. Or it's like Robin Williams in... Um, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. And you're just, you're just like, yes, yes, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> it turns out the job of a professor today is mostly to raise funding to support graduate students. Yeah. Uh, so you're applying for grants all day long, et cetera. And I did not realize that. So after being a professor for about seven years at uh, Carnegie Mellon, I would not want to go back. And again, there are some people for whom, you know, they love this. Similarly, there are some people who love being doctors. I wouldn't want to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, I also wouldn't want to be a professor anymore. During your time at Carnegie Mellon, you built the technology called CAPTCHA. Yeah. Maybe, can you describe what CAPTCHA is? So CAPTCHA is, I mean, most people have done it. It has evolved over time. A while ago, and you still see this, a while ago is these distorted characters that you had to type all over the internet whenever you were trying to get an email account and Gmail or whatever. It's like F3EY exactly. with like the squiggly line through distorted. it. Yeah, exactly. That's the CAPTCHA. More modern CAPTCHAs, now you have to, as opposed to the squiggly characters, you may have to see like a bunch of images of streets and you have to tap or click on all the ones that I are... I get them f***ing wrong every time. Yeah, sorry. Every time. <laughs> so that's also a CAPTCHA. And what it is, is it's a test that is supposed to be that humans can get it right most of the time, but computers cannot get it right most of the time. The reason it has changed is because, you know, back when I first helped invent that in like the year 2000, computers were not very good at reading distorted characters. Today, they are about as good as humans. Mm -hmm. So kind of new tests have had to happen. And by the way, over time, it's just going to be the case that you know, there's not going to be much that humans can do that computers cannot do. So th those tests are going to go away over time. But it's still the case that you know, kind of these traffic lights, et cetera, are still a good test. Do you have a patent on that? Or did you have a patent on no. that? No, no, that was not, we didn't do anything with that. We just, we gave that for free to Yahoo in the year 2000. You gave it to them? Yeah. It was me and my PhD advisor, Manuel. We were just trying to do science and we came up with this idea. We gave it to Yahoo for free and we're like, okay, well, here it goes. And we were just happy they used it. And then what was the next iteration of that that you ultimately sold to Google? In the year 2000, we came up with this idea. We gave- Sorry, how old were you? The year 2021-ish. Okay. So we came up with this idea, gave it to Yahoo, and then Yahoo started using it, and then every other website in the world started copying them. So pretty soon every website had one of these. About five years passed, and more and more websites were using it. I was not that involved with that. I mean, I just kind of had this, the original idea and made the original system, but then I kind of wasn't that involved. I just saw that everybody was using one of these. And then I did a little calculation about how many times a day somebody typed one of these. And the number that I came up with in back of the envelope calculation was about 200 million times a day somebody was typing one of these. First, I was quite proud. I thought, look, 200 million times a day somebody does that. And that's because of my invention or my research. Uh, I thought that was amazing. Then I started feeling bad because anybody that I ever met at a party would tell me how much they hated typing these things. And I thought, okay, 200 million times a day, I'm annoying somebody. And not only that, it takes about 10 seconds of time to type these distorted characters. So I thought 200 million times a day times 10 seconds, the total is 500,000 hours a day humanity is spending typing these. And I thought, okay, maybe, and this started as a research project. I thought maybe we can make good use of this, these, those 10 seconds because during those 10 seconds while you're typing a CAPTCHA, you were doing something with your brain that computers could not yet do. So could we do it for something useful? And that's when it occurred to me that you could, at the same time as people were typing the CAPTCHAs, like the distorted characters, we could get them to help us digitize books. So the idea, the way that worked is, again, this is the year 2005, 2006, there were 
a few projects that were trying to take all of the world's books that were written before the internet era and putting them online. You know, there was about 100 million books that were written that were not online, and the idea was just to put them online. So it was digitizing the books. Google was trying to do that. The Internet Archive was trying to do that. Amazon was trying to do that. And the way it worked is you would take a book from a library, then you would take a digital photograph of every page of the book, and then a computer needed to decipher all of the words in that. It was a picture of words, and a computer needed to decipher all of those words. Back then, computers could not decipher about 30% of those words because the, either the image was blurry or the ink had kind of faded in the book or something. But humans could read 100% of the words. So the idea that occurred to me is take all the words that the computer could not recognize in the book digitization process and send them to people on the internet while they're typing a CAPTCHA. So whenever you would type a CAPTCHA, as opposed to being F37 on a line, sure. it was a word that came out of a book. And we would present it to you. Brilliant. And then what you entered, we would use it to help digitize the book. It turned out that that process worked really well. And so I built the system to do that, along with a couple of students at Carnegie Mellon. And then we kind of by accident had to form a company around it. And then Google bought this company. And when Google bought the company, were you made financially? Yeah, tens of millions of dollars. You're done. Yeah. By the way, that technology, the the capture technology now, I didn't know this is now when it's the street lights, the stop signs for autonomous driving, it's it is. pictures that the vehicles are basically taking that they can't identify. That's exactly right. So it's that, the same idea. That we're helping them sort through and filter. It's the same idea as the digitization of books, except instead of words that the computer could not recognize, now it's things in pictures that the computer could not recognize. And what you're tapping is telling it, yep, that's a traffic light. Etc. So yes, it's that like the is computer. Exactly. It's, it's literally labeling for computer vision. That's what it is. Yes. I, hopefully, they don't use any of my data because it <laughs> would throw them all. Well, it probably knows that you're not very good at it. Exactly. <laughs> How old were you when you sold it to Google? Um, twenty-eight. And did you have a did you have a handcuff for a while there? How long did you have? Two to years. Two years. And did you stay two years? Yes. And during those two years, was it starting to cross your mind like, okay, I'll be thirty? By the time this is over, 30 is pretty young. And you came from Guatemala. Like, you're living in America now. Did you want to go have an entourage moment? Like, go live in LA? Like, did you ever think, like, I don't want to do anything? Like, I'm done. I want to just do research? No. I did that cross just, your mind? No. I'm not going to say I don't like money. It's not like, uh, you know, I hate money or anything. But isn't that hasn't been the primary motivation. It's just like, yeah, it was nice that I had all this money. But that wasn't the primary motivation. The primary mo- motivation was just kind of doing more impactful things, more and more impactful things. So pretty quickly, in fact, while I was at Google, I was already kind of thinking like, well, what should I do next? What should I do next? This gave you the ability to think bigger. Yes, that's what it did. Not only think bigger, but also, and this is really important for the beginning of Duolingo, think bigger and Duolingo at first, it was not a way for us to get rich. It was a way for us to do something with impact. And I think that was a subtle but I think that really made a big difference with how we operated the company for, I mean, we still to this day operate the company, but it was more early on. We operated the company. It was not a get-rich-quick scheme. It was always like, no, we really are going to do something that transforms education. I realized a long time ago that transforming education was not going to be, you cannot do, unfortunately for education, it's not like you can do like a social network that just gets popular from one day to the next because everybody contributes photographs or whatever. You can't do that for education. Transforming education is a, it's a multi-decade thing. And I kind of knew that. And so, you know, we always knew that. It was, we took the long view for it. This is a very random question that might 
produce a very obvious answer, but you sit at this interesting nexus in my mind, where on the one hand, you are a product of our educational system. You are a professor. You went through and went to some of the top schools in our country. You also are building an independent education system where you are empowering an incredible amount of people to learn in their own way who don't have access. Let's imagine for your kids. I don't know if you have, do you have kids yet. No. Maybe if you have kids and they, they have the option and they say, dad, I don't want to go to school. Would you be okay with that? No. I'm a humongous believer in in-person schools, just like I'm a humongous believer in in-person you know, work. Schools serve many purposes, and one of them is just making you a normal, well-meaning citizen. Yeah, I don't like it when I hear, you know, sometimes you hear these billionaires or these like very big individuals who are just like, I'm homeschooling my kid. And I'm like, good for you. You can probably afford a million dollars for your tutor and have the best tutor in the world. Good for you. The reality is most people have to send their kids to school, and I think it is in our best interest that schools are good. And in my case, you know, I, I would definitely send them to school. I mean, of course, I would like them to learn stuff outside of school. Sure. And, and you know, that's kind of the usual. When you're well off, you get your kids to learn stuff outside of school. But I, I'm a big believer in in-person schools. When you started Duolingo, there's a TED video of you in 2011. And you talk about the CAPTCHA technology. And then it's literally you're kind of like, hey, my next project is this thing, Duolingo. So the question that motivates my research is, if we can put a man on the moon with 100,000, what can we do with 100 million? So based on this question, we've had a lot of different projects that we've been working on. Let me tell you about one that I'm most excited about. This is something that we've been sort of semi-quietly working on for the last year and a half or so. It hasn't been yet been launched. It's called Duolingo. Since it hasn't been launched, shh. Uh, I, I can trust you with that. It's funny because I went back to back from watching this video to you at Duocon of last year, which is your user conference. Yeah. And it was like this Jeff Bezos metamorphosis of you. <laughs> like, like what was interesting to me is that you still, even in 2011, which was very surprising to me, when you're standing on stage at TED, you were very professorial in the way that you could present, but your look and demeanor was not what it is today. Like today you look like a superhero running a huge company. Back then you were just more nerdy looking. I was, yet, yeah. yet you had this incredible air about you then that projected this sense of confidence. You just didn't look at it like that from the outside looking in. It was a really funny experience. At Carnegie Mellon, I don't know how it is because I haven't really been there you know, for a while. People were very nerdy. And, uh, you know, I fit in. Totally. <laughs> I, it just, you know, it's one of those things that feeds off of each other. I mean, everybody's nerdy, so everybody's nerdier. And so, you know, I kind of was dressing like everybody else, et cetera. And I think once you leave Carnegie Mellon and you're outside of it, I think you start realizing that, like, oh, I probably should, like, spend two minutes on, like, what shirt I should wear. Or once people start taking selfies with you on the street, <laughs> you start to look at those on the Twitter feed when yeah. you're waking up in the yeah, morning so, and I realizing, mean, shit. That's one thing. The other thing that I think really changed this, I did start my exercise routine. That had nothing to do with looking better. I just, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to be healthier and it has actually really worked. I used to get sick. By sick, I mean like a cold or whatever. Once every like two, three months, I now essentially don't get colds. Yeah. I mean, I like pretty much don't. You attribute that to exercise? hundred percent is the only thing that changed. And you work out every day? Every single day. No matter what? No matter what. I have actually gotten sick with different things and it doesn't matter. I just continue working out. And do all of the things that you do in a given day, are those all your morning? 
your consistent routines of every day, do you basically pack those in to a morning? Mm, well, I mean, that's my personal routines. Then I just come to work. And yeah, by the yeah, way, my but, work is pretty monotonous at this point, but it's, yeah. it's all throughout the day. The other question I had about the TED speech, because again, this is like pre- you being a huge leader of a massive company with all these coaches and you know time spent practicing, you were a great presenter. I was a good professor. Really good. Yeah. When you do public speaking like that, do you have any tips or things that you do to prepare? Because I thought you were excellent in the way that you did this. And again, this was 13, 12, 13 years ago. It's a few things that I think you know, I've learned throughout the years and I think I had learned them by them. I mean, the way I got good at it, by the way, was by teaching a large class at Carnegie Mellon. I taught a class with about 300 students and I just did it, you know, every other day for many years. So you kind of just get better at it. You know, there's a few things. The first one is even if it's a large audience, talk to them like an individual. So you try to look at a, a given person. I try to find the people who seem to be really paying attention and smiling back. And I look at them, they give me energy because they're smiling back. And I try to imagine that I'm talking at them mm. as opposed to like a video or whatever. I'm just talking to a person. I think that makes a big difference. That's probably the biggest thing that I do. And I think that really helps. That's a good one. Can you talk to me about your perspective on marketing, generally speaking? I was giddy when I saw the um, April Fool's. Which one? This one, this last year's. Oh, with the, the Love the, Island? The Love Island. Love oh, Island. And by the way, when you went on Twitter the next morning, how many people thought it was real? Oh, a lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so for the yeah, yeah. for folks listening, it was a one minute commercial, basically. Yeah. And it was We partnered with Peacock. For Peacock. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. We you actually you actually partnered with Peacock. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it was, okay, it yeah. was in the front page of Peacock as if it was coming. That's right. That's yes, right. That's yes, right. That's yes, right. Yes, yes. And you get all these beautiful men and women from around the world, just like you a normal show, a normal one a of reality these reality show. shows. Reality show. A normal yes. one of these reality shows. And the premise of it was that they all spoke different languages. Uh-huh. And they had to fall in love, basically. Yeah. Introducing Love Language from Duolingo and Peacock. I don't understand a word he's saying, but it is so hot. Ten sexy singles will pair up and do daily lessons. Or face the consequences. Our, our mascot was there kind of wrecking havoc. It was very fun. I mean, this was not my idea. This is our marketing team where they're amazing at it. This video was a play off of a reality TV show. We hired a company that does these reality TV shows to actually film it and everything. I mean, it was for real. I mean, we really filmed a pilot for this and it was for real. And the people were actually people that would go into reality TV shows. Like they were actual actors that would go into reality TV shows, et cetera. Uh-huh. So they looked like it. Uh-huh. And they were also skimpily dressed. Uh-huh. And when I was reviewing that, video because you know a lot of the marketing stuff i would say the vast majority of at least our big marketing campaigns i review uh, when i was reviewing it in my conference room which has all glass around everybody can see everybody can see who i'm meeting and what's in in the screens and everything i was reviewing that video and before the video was playing they were telling me for like 10 minutes what the premise was for the whole thing but the the first still of the video was in there and the first still of the video is basically a woman's but with like a very small bikini and people were passing and they're like, what is he doing? He's just looking at some woman's butt. So that was funny. But yeah, the video did really well. But generally our marketing is, I think our marketing team is really hitting home runs. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. But um, what's your philosophy on marketing, generally speaking? Because you all don't do what seems like traditional marketing. I'll tell you, my philosophy has kind of changed over time. 
the first seven years of Duolingo, we did, for all practical purposes, no marketing. It's not true that it was no marketing. We did PR. But we did, what we didn't do is we didn't do performance marketing, like zero. We just did not do performance marketing. We were spending very little. If you look at the first seven years of Duolingo, our entire marketing spend was something like $10 million cumulative. So we were spending, wow. and this included like the salary of anybody who was doing anything related to marketing or anything. So we just basically weren't spending on marketing. We were just doing PR. Then over time, we realized that our Green Owl kind of had a, a little bit of a fandom and we started doubling down on that. And what happened is around, I don't know if it was 2018, I think it was 2018, where we hired our first CMO, Cami Dunaway, uh, who was awesome, but she was very funny. I mean, we hired her. She, Cami had been the CMO of Yahoo in the heyday. She had been the head of all marketing for Nintendo. This is like a big executive that we hired. And, you know, she's the first thing she kind of tells me. She's like, all right, so what's my marketing budget? Uh-huh. And I'm like, uh you need a budget? Eventually, she's, she's also very good at this. She eventually kind of convinced me to have an actual marketing budget. So this is the first time where we actually had a marketing budget. It was in 2018. I don't remember what it was. It may have been like 15 million, 20 million, something like that, which I thought was an inordinate amount of money. And for her, I'm sure it was like a tiny amount yeah. of money because I'm, you know, I'm sure her marketing budget before had been who knows how big. And then we started testing a lot of stuff and we just started realizing that what works best for us are things that, as opposed to performance marketing, we do a little bit of performance marketing, but the majority of what we do are either social media, but not paid. We spend on the production of it. Earned. We spend on the production, but we don't spend on boosting it. We don't, uh-huh. we spend on the production. And it's not like the productions are million dollar productions, but we do spend on the production for that. In certain countries, we do influencers. And in certain countries, we do performance marketing. And it's usually cheaper, the cheaper countries we do performance marketing and influencers. But in a market like in the US, overwhelmingly, I don't think we spend almost any money on the media buys we do on the production. Well, um, it's a test of quality, isn't it? And by the way, don't you think you could generally abstract that to your belief on product too? Because quality, yeah. Duolingo continues to have over 90% of its users are free. And for a long time, even when KP invested, it was everybody was free. Like yep. there was no monetization. Nobody yep. was making, we're, we're yep. not making any money. Yep. And I think part of the reason why you insisted on that is because now the only people that are paying are those that are deriving some sense of quality or are seeing quality in the product in the way that they're getting value. I feel like that essence of quality permeates throughout all of your organizations. Yes. Is uh, that fair? Sure. It is. Marketing and product, it used to be for the first many years of Duolingo, product was like our product, not just product managers, but like, you know, engineers, product managers, designers. Our product was really a crown jewel of Duolingo. And, it, you know, they were hitting home runs all the time. I'd say at this point, product and marketing are both a crown jewel of Duolingo. Again, marketing, it's more recent how we've gotten so good at marketing. But in both cases, we applied a pretty similar approach, which is we hire really, really smart or good people at their craft. People who are very good at their craft. That's kind of one thing. Like, And we're very slow at hiring because we try to hire really the best. So that's one thing we do. And then the other thing we do is they experiment a lot. They're, they kind of use the scientific method on things where just kind of they run a lot of experiments. And then they start seeing what works and they double down on what works. That is how we got to such a good product. That is how we got to such good marketing. We just... By doing running so many experiments, we kind of stumble on what worked. It turned out that for marketing, what worked is our owl mascot doing weird shit. This is what works for marketing. Mm-hmm. And But we didn't start out thinking that that's what was going to work. We tried all kinds of crap. 
most of it didn't work. But when we started seeing that that was working, we doubled down on it and we doubled down on it more. And at this point, we really have honed into that. But it's very similar with the product. We have seen over the years kind of what works with the product. So for example, the streak is a thing that works really well with the Duolingo product. We've doubled down on that a lot. Notifications work well for Duolingo, so we've doubled down mm-hmm. on that a lot. So there's that. And then there's one last ingredient, which is taking the long view. We try really hard for anything that we're doing, even in the experiments or things that we double down on, to not do anything that is kind of short-term thinking or that is going to be spammy. So for example, we know that if we send more notifications, our users would go up. But at some point, if we keep sending more and more and more and more notifications, people start marking us as spam and then the whole channel dies. So we try to really always take the long view and say, no, 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 we're not going to double down on that because that's spammy. So don't do that. Kind of similar we do for our marketing. In the case of our marketing, as opposed to spammy, the things we don't double down on are things that are too risque. We know that there are certain things that we can post on our TikTok or something that are that just cross the line. We don't cross the line because we want to have you know a brand that is good for all ages. Mm-hmm. But we know that we could get some traction if we became raunchy. We know that every now and then we've had some videos that go like you know a little past the line, and we take them down because we just don't want to do that. I think those are kind of the ingredients for what we do for marketing and product. Can you double click on the? You, you said slow at hiring. Can you explain that? Like, what does slow at hiring actually mean in practice? I think it sounds good, but like, where does that trade off happen? I won't say we've never compromised, but generally we don't compromise even if we are in a hurry to uh, fill Meaning a role. even if someone's doing like three jobs because they need somebody. Don't compromise. The, it, so our hiring meetings, it is still true today that me and my co-founder Severin go to every single hiring meeting and we do not let people in that we do not think are you know outstanding. And so usually the hiring manager is in a rush to hire because they're trying to fill a role. They're like, well, uh, look, I don't have a designer and I need a designer for this team or whatever. I don't have whichever it is. And they're usually in a rush to hire this person. We, my co-founder and I, are not in a rush to hire this person. They come in and they try to present a very rosy case and then we start asking questions and we realize, okay, this person is not exceptional. So we don't hire them. And again, it's not like we've hired 100% of exceptional people, but we've tried very hard to only do that. And so there are some roles that take... A long time to hire. I mean, it took us, I don't know, a year and a half, almost two years to hire a CFO. Uh, two years. It, it took a very long time. We went through a lot of people, and I'll tell you one of them, and this is kind of another interesting one for hiring. There was one person for whom everything looked good. Great resume, passed the interview, etc. But what they didn't realize is that one of our interviews was the driver from the airport and they were mean to the driver on the from the airport, and we did not hire. We want to hire nice people, and it was it was a tough decision. We, you know, we, some of us wanted to hire them, but we're like, nope, this person was mean to the driver. Don't do that. And wow. I think that that permeates the culture. Like you're able to. And now, of course, this was an important hire for us. I mean, we don't send the driver to the airport for every of single course. person, but in you know, for a CFO, we would send the driver to the airport totally. to pick him up, and that person, we would ask them afterwards, were they nice to you? And for this one individual. The driver said, nope, actually pretty mean. And so we didn't. And the trade-off of that is during those two years. We didn't have a CFO. I mean, we had a finance. We were doing accounting and we were doing like the yeah. things we needed to do, like paying taxes and whatever it is and that we needed way, to do. And by the way, everyone's yelling at you along the way to probably well, we need we to have IPO. To this- we need to IPO. We can't IPO without a CFO. And, you know, we're just, you know, the people were just like, well, why haven't you fire, uh, hired a CFO? And it, 
we just hadn't. We hadn't found the person we liked. And in the end, the result was amazing. I mean, Matt Skarupa, our CFO, is, holy crap. I mean, we got so lucky. It was worth the wait. It was yeah. worth the wait, but it took two years. That's incredible. It took two years. Do you ever think your energy will take you to do something else? Do you think that there will be a point where you believe you've seen this mission through to a point where it makes sense for someone else to carry the torch? Or in your mind, if you saw on LinkedIn somebody else as the CEO of Duolingo, that's like an almost unfathomable thought. Pretty hard to imagine. I don't have any plans to... Is that the political answer or the no, real No, 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 it's the real answer. It's pretty hard to imagine. It's, it's so tied... At this point, it's so tied to who I am that it's hard to imagine. I mean, I, I also, as a pretty major shareholder of Duolingo, if, if at some point I'm completely f***ing it up, I should probably be removed. That's fair. But that is not today. And I'm hoping that even if it's... You know, at some point we're going to have bad quarters and stuff like that. So I'm hoping that people are patient for that. But I don't see myself doing something else at least at least what, I, what I'll tell you is this certainly I don't see myself starting another technology company from scratch in that I don't think I have the it's not energy I just don't think I have the patience to deal with the crap that you have to deal with when you're like a 10-person company yeah I just don't think I could do it anymore yeah I mean, I'm just like oh what's an God. example of one crap that you think of back then there's just all this stuff that you had to do I mean when people didn't have food, I had to be the one to go buy pizza yeah, for yeah, them and yeah. stuff like that. There's just all this stuff that I'm just like, I don't want to do that. Totally. I also don't want to, you know, when you're so small, just having to convince people to take a job with you, you have to like really like sell. You have to really like be like, no, but trust me, we have this great mission, et cetera. I, I, I kind of just don't want to do that anymore. I yeah. just want to be like, look, if you want to take a job here, go ahead. If you don't, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I just don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. I do want to start a lot of projects, but I would like to do them either inside of Duolingo, which we're doing, or not as a kind of startup tech company. For example, you know, I'm quite involved in Guatemala with a foundation. I'm very happy with that, but that, yeah, is, exactly. not, that is not a Channel tech Channel your company. energy in different ways like that. Yeah, I don't think that I want sense. to start another tech company. And I do definitely want to, again, with Duolingo, we're starting a lot of projects and that's good. It's all inside Duolingo and it's a lot easier because we have the machine to hire people. Like I don't want to build another machine to hire people. That was-, that was um, I think that's well said. That was annoying. Yeah, I think that's well said. <laughs> I conclude all these things the same. Are you hiring? I suspect you are. We just talked about Very the much. quality bar. Are there any key roles that you want to use the platform to shout out? Or if not, like what departments are you looking at? There's no key senior roles that we're currently looking for. We're The three roles that we look for the most and that we're always hiring are engineers, particularly Android and iOS engineers. Mm -hmm. right? So that we're always looking for. Product managers and product designers. Those three roles are the ones that kind of evergreen. We're always hiring those. Last one, and either Angela Duckworth sits on. What's your relationship to her? <laughs> with Angela, there's a nonprofit called Character Lab. Yeah, that Angela was the kind of the main person for for many years. I think these days she's also on the board, but she's uh, she was the main person for yeah. many years. I am on the board of this nonprofit Character Lab. Well, she was the inspiration to the name of the show. Okay, great. Yes, and, yes, I know. Uh, she wrote the book. She wrote the book. And yeah. so I conclude every interview the same, which is when you hear the word grit, what do you or who do you think of? Well, certainly Angela, because she wrote that book and I, I you know, I know her. In terms of actual grit, I'll say it's our head of product, Jem. If you're listening to this, Jem, it's you. <laughs> that guy just keeps going. I mean, he just keeps going. And it is amazing. 
I don't think he's ever been in the army, but he's it's like a it's like an army guy. He just keeps going. It's incredible. Yeah. Luis, thank you. Thank you very much, Jimmy. It's amazing. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.